Hello, welcome to the Healthy for Men podumentary series. My name's Tom Rowley. I'm the editor of Healthy for Men magazine. Before we get going, just a quick partnership announcement. This episode is brought to you by Bounce Foods. Now, Bounce's mission is to inspire positive change in the way people eat, think, and live, which is what the Healthy for Men podumentary series is all about. If you haven't tried Bounce Balls before, they're full of high-quality protein, high-quality vitamins and minerals, and they're great for when you're on the go and you need a quick snack. There's also a vegan option called v which are made from almonds and plant protein. Super tasty, super convenient. Grab a Bounce Ball from any Holland and Barrett store throughout the UK or visit bouncefoods.com for more information. The media have made it feel like we're in the midst of a mental health epidemic. But the key buzzword, anxiety, is more than just a contemporary issue. It can be described as a fundamental element of what makes us human. I don't suppose there's a particular time when you think, I have anxiety. It's just something you, I think everyone has it throughout their entire life. It's really interesting you use the word disabled because I think that sometimes I've felt disabled. Like I have just described myself as feeling couldn't breathe like my heart was absolutely pounding in my chest i felt numb on all my extremities essentially that's when i gave up when i got that diagnosis um because i just it felt like a kind of life sentence and i just uh well i just didn't see how i could ever recover i'm tom Rowley, and you're listening to the healthy for men podcast The NHS Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey states that around 3 million people in the UK are disabled by anxiety. But what's going on in our brains to cause this pandemic? In this episode, we explore the nature of this common mental health condition. We speak with a hypnotist, a life coach and a sophrologist to try and understand how to define the anxious mind. We also visit Bruce Parry, an ex-commando who's lived with indigenous tribes, and see what the last true egalitarian society can teach us about mental health. Most importantly, we look at the difference between a natural reaction to our environment and a mental health disorder. Our journey starts in London in the wrestling ring. A flamboyant display of masculinity and confidence, professional wrestler Alex Cupid leaps onto the stage. Alex performs his athletic routine to a devoted audience. He not only seems well in body and mind, but he comes across as physically and mentally fantastic. But beneath his hyper-masculine exterior, Alex has been taking part in a much less entertaining fight. One that began at the age of 10 years old. 10, the age of 10, like, like um, it, it might sound really um, like, wow, I didn't know that age, but when you're in a classroom and you look around and see everybody else around you is doing school stuff and then you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I felt different. And then you're being chastised for being different as well because if you're not, you know, if you're not like all the other kids, then there's something wrong with you. But they couldn't diagnose it and it took them seven 
another seven years <laughs> until I'm in secondary school for him to like go, oh yeah, he has, you know, definitely anxiety of some sort. And then it became ADHD when I was 18, which is a bit too late. <laughs> That's Alex, who we spoke to earlier this year as he was preparing his move to Japan to train at a world-leading pro-wrestling dojo. When Alex was in school, he suffered racially charged bullying at the hands of his classmates. Alex would have returned to his desk to find letters with racist comments on, tormenting him to a point that drove him into a hole of worry and sickness. And he was quick to find out that the support he needed simply didn't exist. So then, like, the amount that's been to A&E from suicide attempts during that time, like age of 16 to 18, because no one listened. And it took people so long. Like the, I guess the most defining moment like is like my first like overdose on, on, on medication. That is an 18 year old kid trying to take his own life because he can't open a door. And that door is people listening to him. For Alex, anxiety and depression got to such a point that imagining an end was nearly impossible. Despite his confidence as a performer, as an athlete, the way Alex felt inside was nothing like the manly persona he exudes on stage today. Um, but, but is there a connection with you um, taking on wrestling as, as an athlete uh, and, and mental health? Yeah, like, so um, I'm an entertainer. Like, you know, it's, it's, that's first and foremost, and then I'm an athlete. On Wednesday, um, for Progress Wrestling, I was in an intergender tag match, and. This is like the reality of it all. Like I'm there eating sweets <laughs> during a wrestling match. My tag team partner's getting the hell beaten out of him. And then I get tagged in, I'm like going crazy and the crowd's like with it as well. And like, this is what we're doing. And it's the correlation of it is that uh, my mental health at all time low, <laughs> it doesn't matter because when you're in that ring, it could, it'll be on all time high. Uh -huh. That's fantastic. Do you ever get anxious about performing at all? Does, is that oh, all the time? Yeah, all the time. Like, but um, it's a good anxious. Because I always like to think, like, every problem has, a, has a, a good silver lining to it anyway. Like, you know, I couldn't find, um, like, one of my gears. I was like, do you know what? Good. Let's try something different today. <laughs> like, like, forcing yourself to do something. There was a time not long ago when there was zero dialogue about common mental health conditions, zero support, and as Alex puts it, zero doors to open. But today, Alex uses his experience with mental health disorders to promote awareness in schools and help those who might be going through a similar journey. Anxiety uh, can be described or the way that I work with subclinical anxiety is that it's a, it's a fear of that which is not currently present. That's our cognitive hypnotist, Tim Grimwade. Tim has worked with people with anxiety for years and has an expert grasp on the complications of defining mental health conditions. So it can be a fear of specific situations, specific stimuli, or a more generalized feeling of fear about things in total around them. And the, the fear response is the typical uh, recourse for these people. So it might be right to say that anxiety is a fear about the future, about our own thoughts, and about our freedom of action. When you think about the stress caused by modern pressures, it's easy to relate this fear to the digital age and today's competitive workplace. But is anxiety only a problem in a contemporary context? 
Not exclusively. I mean, it would have existed before, but we're getting a much better understanding of it, of course. And uh, you're quite right to say that it, it just seems contemporary. So anxiety is, first of all, fear. Now, that's a, that's a prehistoric response. That's mm. part of our lizard brain. That's right back in the brainstem. We can have fear. Animals can have fear. But we've also got a creative brain. And this is where the anxiety exists by the combination of both of them, because our creative brain then is adding context. Are they judging me? Are they thinking I'm foolish? That comes from our evolved brain, because then we're, be we're creatively finding solutions that are erroneous, that, are, uh, that just feed the fear. So what you've got there is a fear response to something that which isn't dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that's where anxiety lives. And so what we're looking, that's situation A, we're looking to get to situation B, which is something isn't dangerous, therefore we're calm. Mm -hmm. We may still have pop-up thoughts about it, dreadful thoughts about what if, you know, what could happen here, what, what might happen here, what's the danger here, what's the threat. But we wouldn't follow that through into a fear response because we'd be able to answer it with a very rational response is, I don't know, or not enough information, mm -hmm. or I don't care. I, I know that these people aren't important, so I don't need to care what they think about me. Now, this is a more this is a more functional and beneficial response that we can have like this, of being perhaps indifferent, diligent but indifferent at the same time. These things can coexist, or a much more reasonable and calm response to these stimuli. We can imagine an anxiety timeline that runs from the pre-digital age to what we know now as civilization but we can't scientifically measure a difference between then and now. When we visited psychiatrist Dr. George Philman, he made it clear that the history of inner experience is impossible to get a hold on. As uh, my old boss used to say, behavior in animals uh, leaves very poor fossils. Uh, and I would say for humans, thoughts and feelings, literature apart, can also leave quite poor fossils. So we don't really know how much of an issue anxiety was in the past because it's very difficult to reliably evaluate it. It may be worse now, it may be better. So rather than get caught up on the past, let's see what the experience of anxiety looks like today. Well, a lot of the time, no one wants to be a prisoner of themselves. So it's about tackling it head on, you know, taking ownership. Nat Hawley is a manager of an agency that supports people with dyslexia. So I could just stay indoors and not really do anything with my life. Or I can accept that this is something which I have to overcome on a daily basis. If you struggle to open the door in the morning and put your clothes on and, and go to work, standing up on a stage in front of 500 people, there's no difference. You're used to that fear. The anxiety spectrum consumes us all from time to time. The difficult part about that is, when do we really know when we're operating in an area of that spectrum that should be looked at by a professional? So a lot of the times you're in situations and you just feel this kind of like tightening on the chest, this butterfly feeling, this kind of like heavy weight upon you. And it's just something you kind of, you, you get on with. It makes going to issues like parties, social occasions, one-on-one -on -one chats, um, really like apprehensive and not something you, you're really excited to do. Uh, you just assume you're one of those people who are more like introverted rather than a condition attached to you. Social anxiety is one of the most common forms of anxiety disorder. When you look at the stats, this is the phenomenon that seems to be on the rise. 
A survey by the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence found that around 12% of people in the UK are affected by social anxiety. Dr. Philman suggests that this seclusive attitude to a social environment might be getting even worse. In the sense that things like texting and email can enable us not to confront people, i.e. avoid social contexts, it might actually be worse because the avoidance strategies tend to make people, uh, their anxieties stick around. Someone who has first-hand experience with this inner conflict is Nat Hawley. You always have this fear of missing out. And then I think anxiety is very much like a catch-22. So if I go to the like party or opportunity, I'm going to get anxiety and I'm going to want to leave. But if I stay at home, I'm going to know I'm missing out and I'm going to get anxiety out of that. It's very conceivable that in the modern world, um, uh, people can hide better because we don't need to live in groups in order to survive. Whereas ancestrally, when um, conditions like um, autistic spectrum disorder conditions would have evolved, people would have been forced to live in groups. And their, their anxieties would have been reduced by that exposure. But in the modern world, uh, you never get that kind of normal social treatment for your condition, as it were. So it, it's important to, to, to ask oneself, you know, not necessarily how do I feel about something, but what's the, the reward to risk ratio? So social anxiety should be confronted with social action. It's important to avoid the comfort blankets of technology and take on the outside world. But there's another common breed of anxiety that's a little harder to manage. We visited palliative care social worker Nicola Olcroft in her London apartment to talk about her experience with a profound and common condition, post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD. My first experiences of anxiety were following a bit of a unpleasant kind of story. After I moved to London about two weeks in, I was really badly assaulted on a night walk walking home back to my house. And I had quite severe injuries and I spent a while in hospital and then had to take um, some time off work and had had this really, you know, bright idea of living in London and having this really great job. And then um, I had to move back in with my parents for a while. Um, after about three months, I, I did come back to London. But during that time, you know, I became very down with not being at work and kind of spending a lot of time indoors and being a bit afraid of the dark and all those kinds of things. Complications of the injuries I had, I started having difficulties with word finding and concentration and kind of just general things like that. And out of that came a kind of anxiety as well, because I, I think it's a lot of it is down to do with a feeling of a loss of control or just a bit of uncertainty about your situation. And I don't know, I don't know where it ever, I don't know if there was a single moment being back in London where I started having panic attacks again, but they were all very connected to some of the elements of my assault, like people walking behind me on the street. There's a certain like speed of a footstep that would just like remind me of what happened and darkness, open spaces, those kinds of things. So sometimes I had a lot of triggers. So those are the, my first experiences. PTSD can cause a long list of serious symptoms, which usually depend on the nature of the traumatic event. In Nicola's case, a constant feeling of fear was destroying her life. Panic attacks are a common symptom of PTSD and can happen anywhere at any time. 
my first kind of experience of anxiety, the first panic attack I remember was that um, my attack was about around the 30th of November and um, one of my first occasions I remember leaving the house was going into town where I'm from in Northern Ireland and wanting to get Christmas presents for my family. So it was about the 23rd of December or something and during the mugging I'd had my phone stolen, my bag stolen, everything. I was just getting out of the car and I just realised I had nothing with me. I just realised I had no money. I just had nothing and I needed to rely on everybody else around me to kind of help me buy Christmas presents for my family, which was such a strange and simple thing to do. But I just panicked in that moment. I just felt so powerless and so out of control. And it just led to this like palpitations and just like not being able to breathe. And before I knew it, I just was gasping and struggling for breath. And I didn't really know at the time what that was, but that was my first ever panic attack. I am Tom Selleck and I am a writer. One of the worst attacks I ever had was, uh, this would have probably been about three years ago, I guess. And I was feeling fine. It had been a generally good day for me. And I was uh, just about to go down to the local shop to um, to go get some onions or something. And touched the front door and I thought I was dying. Like, honestly, I thought, like, this is it. I had never had a panic attack um, of that severity. I haven't had one since, thankfully. But, like, I, you know, I couldn't breathe. Like, my heart was absolutely pounding in my chest. I felt numb on all my extremities. And, you know, and that was literally just caused by trying to touch the door. And then it wasn't until later and I was, you know, calmed down, the adrenaline has shot out of the system and I'm just feeling exhausted. And I realised, oh, hang on, that's an anxiety attack. That's not actually that's not actually the uh, physical thing that's happened to me. I didn't like, get electrocuted by the door handle or anything. Dr. Philman describes the mechanics of a panic attack and how irrationality can take over the mind. Uh, one of the key workers, investigators, researchers into this field is a chap called uh, Professor David Clark. And uh, it's um, understood to be a catastrophic misinterpretation of signals. Uh, that makes the person dread something absolutely appalling is going to happen. So they'll, it will start with them feeling a little anxious. And then because they, they, they feel a little anxious, their heart might pump a little harder. Uh, and then they'll sense their heart pumping harder and they'll think to themselves, God, there's something happening here. This is, this is a real, real phenomenon. And they get more anxious and the heart will pump harder still, this vicious cycle will set in. And then they think, you know, this, this is real, I'm having a heart attack, I'm going to die, this is, 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 is clear cut, and they'll panic. And in the past, panic disorder was regarded as being essentially almost incurable, but now the cure rate is perhaps more than 80%. And it's by breaking that cycle and helping the person explain that it's normal to feel your heart pumping when you get a bit anxious. and not to catastrophically misinterpret that signal as an imminent and massive threat to life. We can choose a positive word. I'm sat with my eyes shut, confidence, perhaps for visualizing a situation that I want to overcome. Joy and that voice that you're hearing calm. is Dominique Antiglio, as she takes me through a practice called sophrology. speaks to you right now when you found that word or that positive intention of your choice, we're just going to invite it to the in-breath. Inviting that positive intention within the body. And we 
So what is the relationship with anxiety and, and sophrology? How can sophrology help? I think, you know, one of the issues with anxiety is like people are a lot in the mind. Everything is about what will happen if or what's going to happen tomorrow or every trigger in their daily lives. It's like a program that they have inside and every trigger that happens in their daily life, their body and their mind react in a certain way. They often feel that they can't control this feeling or this perception they have. So uh, sophrology really gives them practical tool based based on body awareness, um, based on uh, visualization as well. So they start to feel more able to deal with the symptoms of stress and how to control it, maybe how to anticipate certain situations that they know already this will trigger stress. So we not only help them to really ground themselves in the present moment and be more at ease, but also we help them anticipate through visualizations, through very powerful techniques so they they can be the best version of themselves. Okay, so if I was a client coming to you, uh, I was interested in sophrology, how would our sessions go to start with? What would we do? Okay, usually my client, they come for an issue with stress or a worry they have or something they want to change in their life. So we usually chat a little bit at the beginning. I often ask them questions about their health or how they manage their daily life or what they struggle with, but also what are their strengths. And then we agree on on how we're going to use sophology to serve them. And I tailor a practice that uh, they can take home with them after I, I always record the practice we do together. So from one session to the next, they have time to practice, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. It really depends on how much time they have in their daily life. And from that, we build that path of self-discovery. My name's Tim Grimwade, and I'm a cognitive behavioural hypnotherapist. When we visited Tim's practice in central London, our expectations of going into a trance and bending to the will of a hypnotist weren't exactly accurate. The history of hypnosis goes back a couple of hundred years now and has been developed by consistent refinement of what it means because it started a couple of hundred years ago with mesmerism, which uh, wasn't very scientific at all. Uh, and the problem with that is that it was based on people's expectations and there were various other psychological things going on there and it's much more akin to what we recognise now as stage hypnosis. Hypnosis came out of that when they actually did a lot of analytical work on it and studying it and trying to find out exactly what the phenomena were that were affecting people and so hypnosis was the upshot of that, of a scientific scrutiny of mesmerism. What I take hypnosis to be in a therapeutic setting is the power of constructive and positive suggestions on someone simply by engaging a relaxed state and a state of focus on a particular scenario or theme of ideas and introducing positive and designed suggestions within that. We can start to influence an individual's experience of particular scenarios or a take on particular ideas. And that can be used in a therapeutic environment to overcome issues to do with anxiety, avoidance, fears, 
and um, over-engagement of uh, the nervous system to help people experience life in a much more positive and relaxed way. Do you ever find it frustrating uh, people's perception of, of what hypnosis is or their expectations? Perhaps slightly frustrating. Obviously, it's a starting point for a lot of people. It's it's the main public perception of hypnosis. Um, I'm used to it now. Um, people have a realistic idea of it. They kind of know that there's a lot of show business in that side of things. So they know that it's different. So they generally come prepared that there is a management of expectations to do with that. It would be no use really on it in a therapeutic environment if that stage version of hypnosis were true or accurate. Um, what would be happening there is some, simply a therapist would be remodeling someone's behaviors and it wouldn't last very, one, very long because it wouldn't be authentic to them. The value in what the realistic and the scientific approach to hypnotherapy is that it's actually helping the client to remodel their own behaviours and thoughts and feelings themselves, learning new responses to stimuli. And that's what makes it last much longer and have a much more profound and and, uh, beneficial effect for them. So hypnotism and sophrology are about developing a positive response to the world around us. But what about cognitive behaviour therapy? Why has CBT taken reign as the most effective route? Well, CBT is the model upon which I base the work that I do. The hypnosis itself is simply the delivery method of the uh, themes and the uh, the theories and structures that are that are uh, used within CBT. So it's very consistent with CBT, with hypnosis as the delivery method. Now, used together, they're a very powerful way of changing behaviour and thoughts in an individual. So the CBT was very focused on trying to walk me through the experience that I'd had. And it was very procedural. It was very strict, which was really good. So the first week she just talked around what the experience of anxiety had been like for me and that kind of stuff. And she prepared me in advance for the second session. And the second session was that you had to walk through the assault and the whole experience of it as if I was living it again. And that was awful. Like I can still remember what that felt like. It was so awful. But I replayed that event so many times during those sessions that it started to lose the fear that it had for me. And she made me write out what my thoughts were, what my feelings were, and then what the actual truth of the situation was. So for example, one of the things for me was that, oh, I had my phone out of my hand. So therefore it was my fault. And actually it took me a really long time to be like, well, it wasn't my fault. Like, and that really triggered a lot of my feelings of panic and worry as well, because I was like, I, you know, I caused this, I did this myself. And, and so that kind of working through those thoughts really, really helped with changing my feelings. Well, there's, there's always a psychoeducational component to uh, good cognitive therapy. So uh, explaining the, the, the evidence behind the model and how you, um, adapt the model to the individual is uh, an individual tailoring process as it were okay so what kind of questions would you have to ask preliminary well you'd ask them uh, in, in the context of uh, ptsd yes yeah okay so you'd ask them what has happened to them in the past and they'll go into maybe a little detail or a lot but then if the evidence is that it is ptsd um i.e for example i've seen lots of people with road traffic accident induced post-traumatic stress disorder They've had a car crash. They've they've been 
at least psychologically traumatized by the experience. And um, fortuitously, there's a website called Euro NCAP, which is the European New Car Assessment Program. And virtually all the, the mainstream cars are listed on the website and they've been tested by um, crashing them into, into walls and, and being hit on the side by a pole and stuff. And so um, when the client is agreeable, you can uh, show them these images of almost the specific vehicle that they had their accident in being crashed. And of course, initially it is a bit aversive. It's almost a little bit re-traumatizing. But when they see the same thing, you show it to them 50 times or something, then they get over it. Wow. So they desensitize exactly. themselves to it? Exactly. Oh, that's incredible. And do you think that works with most things? Well, for PTSD, it's a good one because, because otherwise it, it's, you have to ask them to um, undertake what's called imaginal exposure. So you ask them to reimagine, remember the events. But seeing it on, in, in a, uh, a video is, uh, is another powerful kind of exposure. What if your anxiety is a result of your environment and your circumstances rather than trauma? We visited the UK's leading life coach, Michael Serwer, in search for practical advice. My name is Michael Serwer. I'm the coach for the elite. Life coaching is a process designed to empower individuals to meet and exceed personal and professional goals. Identify what makes you unhappy. If I felt unhappy having the life that I have, first thing I think of, biochemical disbalance. Because I can honestly look at my life like, okay, I'm happy in this area, I'm happy in this area, I'm happy in this area, I'm in good health, fitness, whatever. So if I felt really low for more than uh, a few weeks, I would probably think, hmm, it's my body f***ing with me. Let me get it checked out. And maybe the kind of depression I would have would be the clinical one because my life is in order and I know that, right? Because I've, I've designed it that way. And I'm very self-aware, whatever, I can assess it. So I say, hey, before you go to a GP, first of all, ask yourself how happy you are in different areas of your life. Because of course, if you hate your job, or if you can't stand your partner, or if you hate the city you live in, or the flat you live in, of course you're not gonna wake up in the morning feeling excited. But that doesn't make you depressed. You want to be really careful when it comes to putting labels on yourself and on other people. Yeah. And if you are a GP listening to this, you gotta be very careful because you say someone oh you might be depressed oh i'm depressed that's the explanation i'm sick i need the medication no no i believe that maybe there's one or two people out of 10 who say that depressed they're actually depressed and they need to be treated the rest should stay way away from from medication and look into their life and the best thing they can do is to have a coaching consultation with someone they don't need to pay for it, it's they're free of charge. Just have a consultation and let the coach tell you what they think. Don't go to a doctor straight away, go to a coach first. And then if a coach cannot help you, then you wanna get your, your blood test done and whatever goes into diagnosing someone with, uh, with a clinical depression. While this may be true for some, it's important to note that anxiety is a very real debilitating problem for others. But what is the relationship between delusion and anxiety? We spoke to cognitive expert Tim Grimwade to find some answers. But would you say anxiety in a way is a kind of delusion in that you're, you're investing a lot in something that's completely not there, that's not, that doesn't exist essentially. Yeah. You're deluding yourself into 
uh, rationalizing your fears. I take your point. Yes, I am in it. I'm in a job that I don't like. My boss is tyrannical and puts me under all sorts of pressure. And therefore, there is no other response other than anxiety. That is a delusion. You know, we can, life has challenges. We can never uh, expect a life without challenges. Realistically, we wouldn't want a life without challenges. You know, it would be a pretty bland affair if that were the case, to have a completely friction-free life. But the, so we're going to have challenges in our life and the, and the realistic approach is to look to maximize how we respond to that and our experience of life within the prism or through the prism of those challenges. And that's something that we have an enormous capacity or untapped capacity to influence? What's the full bandwidth in which we can experience life when our job is a bit of a struggle or a lot of a struggle? The boss isn't understanding at all, doesn't have any kind of skills for empathy or whatever, and everything is going wrong at work. How can we exist? How can we create a comfortable breathing space for ourselves so that our experience of life isn't dominated by that stress, but is simply responding with peace within that stressful environment? CBT, prescription drugs, life coaching, whatever the method, we're creating Western solutions to Western problems. Perhaps there's something in the core of all this that goes beyond. Borneo is an island in Southeast Asia's Malay archipelago. Within one of the forests of this island lives the last true egalitarian society on the planet. If we're cursed with obsessing over the future and the past, the Panana are a tribe that live under a spell of the present. This is a society that has no hierarchical system, no reliance on industry or technology, and according to some, no mental health disorders. The Penang call this sense of connectivity to their home, to why. Bruce Parry has lived with this tribe and went on a grand adventure to reconnect himself with nature. Bruce insists that we could learn a great deal from their connection with each other and the earth. We had dinner with Bruce to discuss his views on the modern mental health condition and what we can learn from those unaffected by anxiety. Well, I think we live in a stressful life. I think there's lots and lots of stuff. There's loads of pressures on us that, that perhaps haven't always been there. We seem to be piling them on ourselves as a society. And also the way we live isn't, you know, isn't necessarily as healthy for us in our minds and bodies as it could be. And yet, at the same time, we're incredibly successful. You know, we're, we're creating the world we want. And in a funny sort of way, we're sort of slowly waking up to the fact that that might not be very healthy for us. All these things that we desire in life, it's like the, you know, the cheesecake. It's like, you know, it tastes great, but you have too much and it's not good. And it's the same with all of the personal space, all of the walls, all the buildings, all the riches, all the money, all of these things that we aspire to, we're slowly waking up to the fact that they might not be very healthy for us. And the reason that I guess I have this very privileged insight is because I don't see the same stuff when I go and live with some of the tribal people that I spend time with. This egalitarian world might sound like a utopia to those of us suffering with modern anxiety, or it might just sound too good to be true. So is it just hyperbole? When Bruce explained to me the reasons behind this positive mental state, it started to make complete sense. You know, obviously each indigenous group is very different in their own right, but I guess there are some things that, that I do experience when I'm with them that we don't have in the same way. And the biggest one is obviously connection. They know everyone, you grow up, everybody around you that you grow up with, they know you intimately, you don't have to put on this 
facade of being another person. There's no anonymity. Everyone is, is intimate and known. Um, there's less walls and barriers. So you have this um, physical and psychological connection with everything around you too, including nature, which is also very, very important. They often have a, a, a unified belief in something. So there's that other aspect as well that gels them. They're connected to something that's bigger than themselves that they believe in. That's another form of connection. Mm -hmm. And they're connected to their body and senses in a much more profound and deep way, I think, than we are. They're, we're very much in our heads and they seem to be much more in their bodies. I've just made a film recently called To Why, and in that we kind of look at this very question. You know, it's like, I went to live with a group of people who live in Borneo, and they were, they're existing in a way where I think they're meditating on a daily basis. You wouldn't call it meditating, and they're not crossing their legs and like singing on, but they are in their body and senses, alert and aware in every moment to everything that's going on around them. And they're doing that because they're hunting. If you want to catch the monkey, you've got to be aware of your senses. You've got to be in your body. You've got to be alert. If you're drifting off in your mind, you'll, you won't feed your family. And so to me, that's something that, that has shifted over time. Perhaps played its part in this subtle move away from the here and now to a, a lifestyle more based on thinking about the future and other times and places, like the future harvest rather than the here and now. So when you ask me, you know, how are they meditating? I think that things like hunting and gathering was a form of meditation. And that's why what we call spiritual practices are things that societies have discovered over the eons to enable us to come back to that place of feeling connected again. We call it spirituality or whatever, but they're just, that's just the label we've stuck on top of it. In actual fact, it's a form of reconnecting to that feeling of being part of something beyond yourself that I think is at the heart of what it is to be human. Reconnection. This work comes up often when researching CBT, mindfulness or meditation. And it could mean reconnecting with ourselves, with our environment or with other people. So is reconnection part of the solution to this modern anxiety crisis? You're about to hear the story of Johnny Benjamin, whose connection with a completely random stranger actually saved his life. Well, I guess the story starts when I was really young, when I was a kid. So my mental health issues started yet when I was, I'd say probably like four or five. Started saying things that weren't there. Taken to a child psychologist when I was that age. Just continued. Uh, when I was 10, I started to uh, hear a voice in my head. Start, I was having delusions. And then in my mid-teens, things got really bad. And I started having depression as well. And that was, yeah, that was really tough. The, the trouble was I didn't, I didn't really have the language. I didn't know how to talk about it. I, I didn't, I was scared. I was embarrassed. I tried to get on with things and tried to block it out. And, you know, just tried to deny it, essentially. I went off to university. And when I was in university in Manchester, um, that's when everything just kind of uh, came to a head and had a breakdown, um, became really unwell. And I was put into hospital um, and I was diagnosed with something called uh, schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia and bipolar, combination of the two. Essentially, that's when I gave up, when I got that diagnosis. It felt like a kind of life sentence and I just, uh, well, I just didn't see how I could ever recover, essentially. It just seemed impossible. So um, I ran away from the hospital and I went to this bridge. I just... 
I just thought it was the best thing, not just for me, but, you know, for uh, particularly my parents. Um, it was just kind of hopeless. It was really hopeless. And I just thought it was best for, yeah, everyone if I wasn't here anymore. So I went onto the edge of this bridge and then um, this stranger uh, came along and started talking to me. It took me a while to engage with him. I didn't, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want him there. He was interrupting my plan, you know? So it took me a while to engage with him, but eventually I did. And it was him really. He was incredibly um, grounded and calm and, and really patient and very um, empathetic, you know? I just, especially being another guy, I don't know what it was. It was just, he, I just had this connection with him. And I felt I could open up to him and I hadn't had that with anyone before. And I really did open up to him. And he said two things that I remember that really kind of just struck a chord with me. The first thing he said was, don't be embarrassed. You don't need to feel embarrassed. No one had said that to me before. Never heard that before. Because I think the main, well, I know the main reason I was there was this um, just overwhelming embarrassment about uh, everything in my head. Uh, my diagnosis. I was struggling with my sexuality as well. And, you know, being, I'm, I'm Jewish and being gay and Jewish, it, it didn't really sort of fit back then. But the real key thing he said was actually very simple. He said to me, I think you'll be all right, mate. You know, I think you'll get better. Um, and no one has said that to me before. In the hospital where I was, um, it was it was a really like negative outlook. Uh, my psychiatrist was kind of like, we don't know if Johnny's going to get better. And it was just, yeah, it was. But this guy just, um, he's so positive. He just had this real positive outlook. And I don't know, I just, I needed to hear that from someone. And so eventually he convinced me to go for a coffee with him. And, and I did, I wanted to. I felt, as I said, I had this connection. And I got off the edge of the bridge and I went onto the pavement and... Um, I didn't know, but there was police kind of waiting uh, for me a bit further down and police just charged out and grabbed me and uh, they took me away and they, I was sectioned and that's the last time I saw that guy. Well, f for a while, uh, I was taken away, I was sectioned, I was put back into hospital and my, my journey changed really after that because I did have some hope. I did have, I did feel more positive. You know, I, I, I don't know his words. It really affected me. You'll be all right, mate. Don't be embarrassed. Those simple human sentences displayed a level of connection that perhaps we could all learn from. I'm not going to lie, it did take a long time to uh, really get back on track, if I'm honest. Um, years and years to finally talk about it and to finally... I started making YouTube videos. That was my thing in my mid-20s. Yeah, to, to, to kind of get rid of that embarrassment and that it was easier talking to the camera than looking into someone's eyes. So um, I started making YouTube videos and that helped me. And I finally started to talk and I started to tell people, like, I've got mental health issues, I'm gay. Uh, massive. It was like a weight off my shoulders. It was massive, massive. And it was then that I started to feel more myself. And when I felt more myself, um, I launched this campaign to find that stranger on the bridge, um, which kind of went, well, it went viral. It was, it was, yeah, it was really surreal. Very, very surreal. The amazing thing was we found him. I didn't think that we would find him, but through Facebook, he came forwards and, um, we, we were reunited and yeah, ever since then, it's been a really remarkable journey together. Um, 
we, we work together now and uh, we, we go over the, all over the world, really, going into schools and prisons and, and hospitals and businesses to, to talk about mental health and to empower others to talk about mental health. And uh, I'm really, I'm really lucky, really lucky with this journey. Pretty honest uh, about you know the fact that I still I still struggle and I still need to every day look after my mental health and and if I don't then it goes wrong and I get ill again I have to go into hospital so I still struggle but things are different now things are different and that's the big difference is I talk about it that's the big difference and I I I I admit that you know I've got got these things in my head and I need to kind of yeah manage them and, and that's that's the big difference. If you want to learn more about Johnny's incredible story, his book, The Stranger on the Bridge, is out now. So, we've seen what anxiety can look like, we've seen its many forms, and we've journeyed down some of the avenues to help manage it. While we may never be masters of our mental health, knowing that we shouldn't be embarrassed and that it's okay to talk about it is a reassuring thought. Okay, well, advice I'd give to your listeners who might have anxiety or or think they may have it, just planning out your day about expectations. If you were to go to, say, this event, this gig, this party, whatever, what is the likely outcome? You know, the likelihood is you're going to meet people, you know that. The likelihood is that you, you know, someone might shake your hand or look at you. There doesn't have to be any hidden surprises. Understand why you're feeling these things and making time and space in your life to do something about it. And also trust your friends. Like, people will disappear if you start talking to them about mental health stuff. And that's, if those people go, that's fine. People who do stick around and you can rely on for help, sometimes it is okay to say, I'm sorry, can you help me out with doing some shopping or something? I'm in this place. You know, to reach out. We're all we're all in this. We're all in it. You know, this is like we're all struggling. Every one of us, the person you look up to most in their private moments, is full of their own addictions and problems. And we're all we've all got it. You know, and so I think that coming together and admitting it and, and accepting that our society is sick in many ways, and that yes, we're wonderful human beings, and that we're all trying our very best. And this has been going on for a long time. And yes, it's accelerating and getting worse, but you know, we, we, we can get through this and that we have to like be open ourselves and admit it and be with it and come together. That's the biggest single thing we've got to get through is get rid of the stick up your bullshit that we've grown up with and open our hearts and come together and experience life in a, in a much more connected way. Like the world's not going to empower you, so empower yourself and then use that butterfly feeling, not as something which keeps you prisoner, but as a thing that really empowers you to give you energy. I used to be anxious when going to like meetings or doing public speaking. I still am, but the difference is I use that butterfly feeling as something which shows passion and enthusiasm. People, I think, go into a lot of mental health stuff uh, feeling like they're on their own and they're really not, particularly if you've got anxiety, generally will have a feeling of I'm not very good and people don't want to help me. But actually just reaching out to a friend and when you need it, like, and even if it's just as simple of, can you just come over and watch a movie with me? Knowing that you're not on your own is, yeah, that's a super helpful thing. 
not to feel embarrassed and, and ashamed. Um, to, for them to know that they're absolutely not alone, you know, you can feel like you, you're the only person in the world with these thoughts and these feelings, but my God, you're, you are, you're so not alone. I've been Tom Rowley. My co-director and editor is Andy Greening. And we'd like to thank you for listening to the Healthy for Men podumentary series in association with Holland and Barrett. If you have any questions about the issues raised today, please visit our Facebook or Twitter pages at Healthy for Men for more information. We'll also be releasing the full interviews from this episode, including a talk with Bruce Parry, Johnny Benjamin, hypnotist Tim Grimwade, and wrestler Alex Cupid. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our channel for future episodes. Leave a comment and a rating. We love to hear from you. Finally, don't forget to pick up your copy of Healthy for Men magazine in any Holland and Barrett store today.